This is Tales of Teaching, a podcast about inspiring teachers with a story to tell. I'm Bryony Galligan, and in this first episode, I'm excited to be talking to a friend and former colleague of mine, Charlene, or to use her title, Dr. Charlene Breda. Charlene's someone who you can easily get lost in conversation with, so she should be the perfect guest. Originally from the States and now living and working in Cambodia, Charlene has worked for state and district departments of education in the US, has been a university lecturer in Scotland, an education advisor in Cambodia, and has experienced as a classroom teacher in three different continents. We talked to Charlene about the path her teaching career has taken and what motivates her to keep evolving. Welcome and thanks for speaking. Can you just describe where you're sitting right now? Because I think that might give us a little bit of context as to to where you are. I am sitting under a mango tree, which is loaded with sweet fruit, ready to pick. We come out and pick the ripe ones each day and share with the neighbors. There are at least seven chickens that I can see right now just wandering around from the neighbors. Um, the wind is slightly blowing through the trees, and it's still the hot season, so it, it's, we're melting here. But um, it's a very rural area in Cambodia. My little village has about 300 people. We are close to the market. I can walk to the market, uh, which makes it nice. It's not as rural as it could be. But uh, I spend my, I'm sitting next to my well pump that I spend uh, time pumping water for washing clothes, washing our bodies, flushing the toilet, and um, we have to import drinking water because the well water is not clean. Uh, there's a severe problem with garbage in Cambodia, so uh, but there's no garbage collection, so people either have to burn it or more frequently they just throw it on the ground, which then enters the well water. So, yeah, that's where I'm sitting. <laughs> and that's quite a contrast to where you came from, which is where I'm sitting, uh, well-developed city in Germany. So how did that feel to go from here to there, like the culture shock? Obviously, you'd worked there before, but can you describe how, what the difference, what the main differences are? I think, like, you know, you have culture shock when you go to any new place. And so when I came to Germany, I had just been after teaching college students in Cambodia, uh, we had a science project here, and they were amazed to see uh, baking soda with vinegar and that it makes a gas and you can blow up balloons with it and we can do all kinds of things with it. And I get to Leipzig and my fourth grade students are doing this for a science fair. And I thought, wow, you know, we, need, we have a long way to go in Cambodia when you've got university students that have never seen a science experiment in their lives and they're memorizing colors of things that are supposed to happen in order to pass the exam, but they've never seen anything. Um, so that was quite a shock going to Germany from, from here. And then coming back from Germany to here, of course, we have not lived ever in any culture in a rural area. It's, it's, we, we know the neighbors very intimately. People come and sit on our doorstep at 6.30 in the morning when I wake up. And uh, I've got an 87-year-old grandmother who opens her window onto our porch. So we've been feeding her and invited her to, to join us for meals. I've got a 10-year-old who lives with her who's also joining our, our meals, and we're trying to help him with his schoolwork. 
Um, it's, every day is an adventure. I feel like I don't do much during the day, but anything could happen. You know, the neighbors just suddenly decide that we're all going to pick mangoes that day, and they all show up, and we're climbing in the mango tree. Or they decide that we need to sow something, and uh, so we're sowing something. Uh, the kids are in and out. I had yesterday 50 kids on my front lawn playing badminton and various games that I've bought. Um, so it's a very intense social experience and also a very intense physical experience. You know, you I, I cook three meals a day and I have gas stove, so that's a, a luxury. Most people are cooking on an open fire. And but you, I, I wash my dishes in a in a pan and uh, with the well water. And if you don't wash them right after you've used them, you have colonies of ants coming and, and living in your dishes. So everything, Cambodia is very uh, unforgiving of procrastinators. <laughs> if you don't do something, <laughs> you, you will find yourself inundated by various creatures. So <laughs> that part has been a shock. <laughs> and so to give us some, some background, what brought you to Cambodia and what are your current aims there? that I should switch jobs and we applied for VSO, which is Volunteer Services Overseas. It's a British organization, very similar um, to Peace Corps, and um, they will send, their education programs are mostly in Africa. Um, they have several in Asia as well, but the like 80 or 90% are in Africa. So we started telling people we, we were going to move to Africa because we needed a story. Uh, and then they sent us our placement, and they said Cambodia. And we said, wow, where is Cambodia? So we, we found Cambodia, and in Asia there are many tonal languages, and I know that I don't hear the tones. I'm, and I know that it would be very difficult to live in a country uh, with a tonal language because we do want to communicate with people and, and learn to speak the local language. So the first thing I learned about Cambodia is that it is not a tonal language. And I thought, okay, we, we can go there. And um, so I was an advisor for four and a half years at a teacher training college, which trains people who have a high school diploma for two years. They come to the school and learn how to be a primary school teacher. And uh, the, the teaching methods are very much still uh, chalk and talk, and it's uh, very much still on memorizing. So the tests are about what you've memorized, the teaching is just memorizing and repeating over and over and over again. So I try to show different methods for teaching, doing small projects and things, um, and, and was successful. I think the teachers know that it's, it's a good thing to, to involve students in different projects, but the social pressure to teach in a traditional way is still there, and quite realistically, I mean, some of these people have 50 children in their classroom. If you're going to have 50 kids and you're going to do group work, you're going to have 10 different groups with five kids in a group, it's a lot to manage. Yeah, of course. Um, and they're also sitting at these very heavy desks that don't really move easily so on benches. So you've got a lot of physical challenges with 50 kids in a classroom. Where are they going to go? Also, culturally, of course, the children will be louder if they're talking to each other. So then that's you know, frowned upon. So if you don't have a supportive director trying these new methods is also very challenging. And have you seen the culture of that change over time in the period that you've been there, or is that something that is, is continues to be like one of the major challenges? It has definitely changed. Um, the, the population is very young. Uh, 40% of the population, I think, are under the age of 26. 
so it's a very, very young country, and um, I think more and more young people are starting to reach out through, I mean, they've, now they've got cell phones and they've got iPhones. Not everyone, of course, it's still a very poor country, but there are more opportunities to get on the internet to see different things. Um, the challenge is that the teachers are still poorly paid. They did get a raise, but basically it's culturally acceptable and, and necessary for them to before to charge money for children to come to school. So even though if, if school is officially free, many students still have to pay about 10 cents a day to, to go to school. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but actually if you have 30 kids in your class and they're all paying 10 cents a day, at the end of the month you've got an extra $200. Yeah. And so and their salary is $240, which is a, a, a good, you know, a reasonable salary. Um, but they're just used to now charging this extra money. So this is a very big challenge. They also have, if they don't charge extra money, they have extra lessons after school. So children learn from 7 a.m. to, say, 12, or from 1 to 5, and then in the off time, the teacher could teach them extra lessons. Um, so again, for money. And, and that eats into the kids' free time and, and the teacher's free time. So everybody is, is spending a lot of time learning, but not necessarily learning in productive ways. And is that affordable for the? Is it affordable for the families to pay that ten cents a day? And what percentage of children do you know um, are actually attending school? They attend school, but I mean, I'm, I'm helping one poor uh, grandmother with three children that she's her grandchildren that she's supporting, and you know they can't afford the five hundred uh, or the, the ten cents a day. So um, now there's definitely you know eighty percent of Cambodia is still rural. If, it, if you're in a rural area, you're generally speaking in a poor area, and it, it is a struggle for a lot of the kids to pay that, that school fee. And when you get into high school, it's like a dollar twenty-five a day, which is really, really expensive for the poor kids. And actually, that's when it matters that they, they don't charge for regular school, but they charge for the extra lessons. And if you don't go to extra lessons, then you basically won't pass the exam because the teacher's only giving the information out for the exam during these paid lessons so that's a, that's oh, a very big barrier yeah yeah so actually the standard lessons aren't going to get you through the qualifications that you need to succeed no no I, i'm that's really the challenges and then also just uh, critical thinking um asking what do you think about this is there is none of that it's just there's always the right answer and you should they will tell you the right answer and you should memorize the right answer and then we're done with that so that it's really difficult to have any kind of analysis, you know. Um, of course. I, I try to show, I'm teaching an uh, English class one hour a week now at the high school, and I try to show short films or read short articles and then have them think about their own experiences and relate it to these topics, but it's very, very difficult for them to go beyond the obvious restating what has happened. I see. So their responses tend to be sort of um, the same as they would be in any other classroom. So because that's the way that they've learned to respond in a classroom setting. Yes. yes. And their, their thinking has not, no one has supported them to think, how, what do you think? What do you, how do you think? How do you support your opinion? There's nothing like that. Any, any discussions they have at home, at school, with anyone, no one is, is having those conversations. And so if you have no place to, you know, develop that skill, then that skill is, is very lacking. 
there's no way to it, it, you, you can't develop it in a vacuum you know yeah it's really hard to to help them to do that so um again comparing that to your experiences here in germany that um, ability to reflect and question and open-minded thinking is that something that you saw um most successfully in Germany or in the States? I know that you've taught there as well. Is that, how would they all compare to each other then? I think the traditional school system itself, any school system, does not encourage that so much. I mean, we all have right answers. The teacher is the one uh, directing what is to be learned. The teacher is the one saying, this thing is important because I'm going to put it on the test. Um, the teacher is the one saying, here's the topics we will learn. So I think um, in, in many ways, I mean, Cambodia is more extreme because they don't have any choice in anything, plus they're not even learning critical thinking within those limited choices of traditional school. But, you know, it's still a problem, I think, in, in all systems. And so my own teaching, I try to challenge that as much as possible. Of course, I still have to teach the curriculum, and I still have these goals for these students. But uh, to me, it's very important that they have choice in what they're learning. I don't want to have kids get to be 18 years old and then they say, okay, what are you going to do with your life? And they have no concept because they've never been allowed to pursue their own interests. Yeah. And so this is where I teach with independent projects. As I've adopted yeah. too. <laughs> One hour a week, they, they pick their own topic, whatever they want to be studying and learning. And it's really difficult to get them to change their idea. They're very trained to say, okay, I'm going to do a PowerPoint on tigers. And I say, okay, well, what is it that you want to learn about tigers? I will tell about what tigers eat. I say, well, what do tigers eat? Oh, they eat these other animals. Well, I said, you already know that. So I don't want you to tell me what tigers eat. I want you to learn something. But they're used to demonstrating their knowledge. And this is very different from a curiosity of wanting to learn and not knowing something. And, and it takes, you know, sometimes a year or even sometimes I don't succeed with students to get them to the point where they're actually curious about something and willing to put the, their own effort into learning something and building on something for themselves. And actually, I, actually I think... Had one student... Mm-hmm. I, I was just going to say that I think the... the um your description of how children react in Cambodia you know we like to sit and think um, on this side of the fence that things are different but in actual fact um, it's it's just we're on the same scale because we're all operating right. in this in the, it, under the same mechanism of um, um, imparting knowledge and then children absorbing that and then regurgitating it if you like We'd like to try yeah. and move away from that, but what are the restrictions that are stopping us from being more flexible? And what are your thoughts on that? I think traditionally teaching profession is, is conservative. I mean, it's, its cultural goal is to reproduce society as it is. So it's very difficult to challenge gender stereotypes, power relationships, everything in the classroom anyway, because you're, you've set up a system to reinforce those things. Um, and I think uh, it's in the U.S., the testing, um, the te you know, wanting to quantify everything is, is a huge Absolutely. social pressure now in the schools. 
Um, I know, in, I think in England it's the same way, quantifying and making sure that the school is doing a good job. Um, schools are so divorced from communities um, in the way that they're funded and the way that people think about schools. But if you look at the community and if you have a very challenging community where people are unemployed or facing severe challenges in their own personal lives, then the school is also part of that and you have to recognize that. And I think it's just um, inequality. So you can see the social inequality in our schools and how that plays out. So there's those pressures on schools to perform. And if you can perform, then you can get the good piece of paper and keep getting the job. And I think there's less of a, a value put on intellectual curiosity or creativity or anything because how can you evaluate that? How can you quantify that? Absolutely. Do you, do you think that that might you? be a luxury of the, the wealthy in that well, they I can mean, afford yeah, not to have that, that certificate? more resources to be creative you know I can say it at LIS I could say oh we're going to do an art project next week and I've got kids coming in with all kinds of supplies if I announced that in one of the more uh, urban schools that I taught at in the U.S. I, you know I'd be bringing in the supplies or we'd be making do with what was in the art room which isn't very much so yeah you, you have first of all resources mm-hmm. um, you've got engaged parents who are interested and most of these parents have interesting jobs I mean I even had a mother who was an artist come into our classroom I mean how you know that's amazing uh, a parent is able to to help with with art stuff you know um, most poor parents don't have the time nor the education or the confidence to to share those things with the class so you've got um, a human capital as well that makes a big difference um, and you've also got I mean you know Western culture says oh you should be creative and you should what is it that you think and all these things that's definitely an upper class sort of attitude so there's there's definitely we teach differently at the dif- at different income levels as well um, because you're reinforcing different social necessities really um, and, yeah you know, some kids, if you have if if you have a school that's a very mixed income school, you know generally your higher income kids will have more experiences outside of school as well to build their confidence, and lower income kids won't have those opportunities. So you, the kid will present differently, even just you know in the same classroom. So um, you've just described how your what your daily life looks like, um, but I know that you've also worked on the macro level. What's made you decide to go with where you are at the moment? Because I know that, for instance, you could have uh, you, you could have stuck with any one of those roles that I, I listed in the intro, but the, you, you keep on evolving and changing and making these choices. And what is it that's made you take the choice where you are now? I think I think all of these choices relate to each other, and I think many people at the policy level do not have recent classroom experience. And teaching is such a profession that evolves yearly. I mean, teaching techniques, you know, come out and and you you start thinking differently about your own teaching. You read a book about how someone else is doing this differently and had some success. You try that out. Different policies come in. Different fads come in for different ways of teaching. It is not a, a profession that stays still. Yeah. So even the idea that, oh, I already learned this in school and I'm done being, I'm done, you know, done with my professional development, that's never true with teaching. And so I think for myself, um, I was in Cambodia teaching for four and a half years new teachers. And the methods, of course, that I'm giving them are, are 
new for them, but it's not the latest, greatest uh, that where where I was, you know, teaching in the U.S. or yeah. in Germany. So for me, it was very important if I want to keep advising people on how to do stuff that I have my own self, you know, confronting small people again and looking at how what methods work and what what's needed in the classroom and trying to to understand that again so that I could bring the better methods back with me. So that was definitely a motivation for taking my own class. Um, and then why I came here, I think we, we really um, enjoy the close community here and the lifestyle. I mean, neighbors bring food over to us constantly. I'm making extra food to share with other people. Um, it's just a very open and um, tight-knit place to be. And we enjoy that uh, very much. We enjoy the community very much. And I feel that just uh, being myself in, in one way is, is, is a lot of uh, bring just people watching us and doing seeing what we do or how we are helps them to think a little bit differently, too, just because we are such strange animals here yeah. <laughs> in a village where we're the only foreigners. Um, so I believe that, um, I mean, I came here to be the director of a school, and that didn't work out so well. Uh, the reason I wanted to be a director is because you can set the tone of the school. You can set um, that you can motivate people. You can set the direction together with your teachers. And I thought it would be exciting to try to do that. And now that I'm not doing that, I'm still helping the community to develop. I have, I'm going to start a knitting group with 30 people learning how to knit. And at the end of the three weeks of training, they will have a new job. And they can do this job at home and make an income that will allow them to stay at home and not have to move to a foreign country and leave their families and not have to move to a factory and be, you know, be um, transported essentially in, in big trucks like, like animals to their, to their workplace uh, and make very little money um, making garments to, to sell abroad. So these are the only options currently available here in Cambodia, and, and Cambodia has become a labor-exporting country. And when you start seeing young mothers with kids who are eight months old saying, well, I don't know what to do. I think I'm going to give my kid to the grandmother and move to Korea, and I'll see my child when it's three years old again. You know, this kind of decision is, is so heart-wrenching to me. Um, so I would really like to see more planning, first of all, on the part of young people in Cambodia to see wh what are they thinking, how are they going to earn money, don't have a baby until you kind of have a plan, and then also, you know, getting jobs in, in the local area that, that they could earn a, a real living with. Um, so it's not teaching, but in a way it is teaching. I mean, I've got um, an after-school program, informal after-school program at my house every day with kids coming and playing games and playing badminton and learning to put trash in a trash bin and learning to say please and thank you and reading books because here there's not many books available and I've got a library with 200 books that they can come and read and check out and I mean it's constantly busy. So I think that this kind of teaching is more informal. And, um, and, and almost I, more in the direction of where people want to aim from the classroom in a way anyway in terms of life skills. <laughs> You know, we're trying yeah, to equip yeah. children to, to be successful um, in their lives outside of school. And sometimes I think the classroom, like the physical environment is quite confining, isn't it? When you, you say it's not teaching, but it certainly is because they're learning the very skills that they need to be successful in their lives. Yeah, this is what I hope. Yeah. 
Sounds I mean, fantastic. I have, I have I mean, three if you... kids that come by and, and help cook my meals every day, you know, <laughs> and they're learning how to use a knife and they're learning how to fry stuff and I don't mind that they're making a mess in my kitchen and I think at home they get shooed away because the parents are so overwhelmed with all of the other chores that they have to do that they can't be teaching their kids how to cook. So yeah. I don't mind, you know, having a crowd of people in my kitchen. Amazing. <laughs> You're very generous with your time. That's one of the things that I remember about you, that you would always have time for child or adult coming to you or dropping by. <laughs> that you, you, um, uh, something that I've definitely learned from you, that, that there's always time for everybody, somehow. <laughs> Seems to always be the case with teachers I admire. Um, Thank you. Yes, that's true. Do you think that um, you'll some point go back to the macro or the government or policy making side of education? Um, I, I currently will maybe have a job uh, consulting, so I will be writing curriculum, which is more of a macro um, experience for actually writing curriculum for school gardens for Cambodia, which is very exciting. And the idea is to use the school garden not only for food, but to, to learn about food and to learn about vegetables and why vegetables are things that you should eat and could be healthy and that you could raise at home. Again, solving some of the food issues here. You, you know, people have land and they could be growing vegetables, but they just don't think to. So um, changing the culture through the school. Um, and I think, uh, I don't know if I'll, I will go back to super high levels, but I... I, I like, I really enjoy going between the different levels and I enjoy bringing the experiences that I've had, you know, this experience that I've had in the classroom in Germany will, will very much inform how I will write this curriculum in Cambodia, yeah. you know. No, I think that, I think all levels can inform each other and it's a special thing to, to have experience at all the different levels to understand how my teaching practice as a teacher is shaped by for example, the lack of books and the lack of what I would call curriculum. You know, we, we have ideas that you're supposed to teach, but as a teacher, you have to find all of those ideas. And that's fun and creative at some level, but it's also a lot of work and a lot of reinventing what other people have already done, but you have no access to because there's no textbook. So in the one way, textbooks, you know, I understand that they're an old way of looking at things and the textbook would become out of date, you know, in a few years mm -hmm. because of new knowledge, but at the same time, when teachers are provided with really quality resources and games and interactive things from the get-go, then you can use those things and you're not spending all of your time inventing, finding, producing, laminating all of these resources. Yeah. So I, I really think, I mean, I, 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 was, I caught the golden tail of the end of one of these errors in San Diego, where they actually had, for the entire San Diego City School system, a building filled with teaching resources wow. and teaching experts to help you. You could make an appointment with them and go in and say, I really want to teach about the human body. What should I do and how should I organize this? And they had amazing ideas and they had amazing resources. So someplace in between the two of those things would be a good place to to have a sweet spot, you know? I mean, looking at Cambodia, you couldn't have the curriculum that we have at the international school because nobody here has computers. There are, there's no paper. <laughs> there's no photocopy machines out in the rural areas. And so it forces you, to think, forces you to think differently about how you might approach something. Yes, definitely. Do you but think... also you realize the need for supplies, the need for 
materials, you know. Um, the teachers spend a lot of time just making one little resource for one lesson if they, if they have that time. And otherwise, you've got the blackboard with the chalk, and that's it. And so, you know, you can't do group work if you don't have paper to write on or you don't have some kind of end product and you don't have – there's just so many small things that our work as teachers in a developed country – we depend on yeah absolutely school here and so the library um sorry the school garden curriculum will be the first step in building some kind of resource that teachers can tap into um i'm hoping that i i'm not sure what this will look like in the end but my vision would be yes that you have an overarching goal that you want and then you would have actual resources that the teachers could use but I have to be very careful with not saying, here, just copy 25 of these pictures. Of course. Because they don't, they can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Do you think that that might be an experience in terms of um, stepping outside of the classroom or stepping into the classroom that should be promoted more across the profession of teaching? I think what influenced my teaching the most was um, doing research in other people's classrooms. So after I had been teaching for two years, I became a researcher and was in, I don't know, 50 different classrooms wow. watching teachers teach. And I learned so much about classroom control, about gaining attention, about being positive, about classroom decorations. I mean, it was amazing. These people were amazing. And to have that experience, because teaching is so isolating. It is. Even um, if, you're, if you're working in a team, you, you at least can talk to people about the same I'm doing the same topic as you, and this is what happened, and I saw the children struggle, and you have other ideas, but you're still not seeing that person teach. And, and that's so different, I think, from, and, and you know, teaching, again, is, is one, a very strange profession in that you are working as teams or maybe not traditionally very isolated and difficult to work as a team. So then if you're working in isolation and you're the only adult with 20 or 30 kids in a classroom, it, it, it makes you into a very strange person after a while, I think. Yeah. It's not normal. Like you, should, you should have adult conversations with other people <laughs> and they should understand what you're doing, you know, and how can you understand what someone is doing if you don't see them teach? Yeah, absolutely. It's so, one of the reasons I wanted to do these conversations was that I realized that my most valuable um, learning experiences as a teacher are either when you're sat in somebody else's classroom or when you're um, discussing teaching simply not with any not necessarily with any particular aim in mind so not a formal setting but just um uh picking apart a lesson you've just watched or an experience that you've had that day or and, and really discussing it and being open to other people's opinions about how they might have approached something or, or being honest when you've um found something particularly challenging having people that you can say what would you do in this situation or you know i'm looking to be more um in this direction with my teaching, what would you do? And, and really using other teachers as a resource for learning. And, and the strange thing is that we're surrounded by them every day if you work in a, um, a larger school, yet we don't really tap into it as, as much as we could. Um, so I totally agree that it's, um, it can be very isolating and it should be encouraged to, to watch others and to discuss with others. Can I ask you a little bit about your um, your experiences of education when you were growing up? What what was that like? Education and learning in your home and and your school experience. Um, my 
my parents and my grandparents all really valued education, and but they were never they never asked about my grades. They never ever said once, "What did you get?" Huh, interesting. They always said, "What did you learn? What did you learn?" And um, we had, you know, we always talked about what we learned, and um, I think that was the most important influence for me. I, I was a good student; I got good grades. But um, there was one topic I remember in seventh grade that I just did not care about, and it was the, the what different scientists are called. If you study ants, you're called something. If you study stars, <laughs> you're called something. I, I didn't care, and so I didn't study, and I got a D, and all the other students, I usually got A's, and all the other students were like, oh, how could you get it? I said, I don't care about this. I'm not studying this. <laughs> and you were confident enough and at I, that stage to say, that's not something that I'm interested in. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I had, there was one other time when I protested, too. I, I, we had to read Frankenstein, and I don't like scary stuff, and I thought it would be a scary monster story, so I refused to read it. This was in high school. And uh, so I went and got the cliff notes and read the summary and passed the test because you have to pass tests, but I didn't read it. <laughs> and, you know, I, I guess, you know, obviously now I realize that Frankenstein is a psychological book and it would probably be interesting to read, but at the time, like, you were never going to convince me to read that book. And what and were again, your... we had no... What, what were your parents' um, reactions to that, that pattern of, like, the way that you reacted? Um, yeah, the, uh, you know, people... People were more interested in the grades, um, and I even—I I mean, talking about gender too. I mean, I saw a girl who was really, really smart in seventh and eighth grade, and then she discovered boys, and she became extremely stupid um, because she thought that that would be more attractive. And I, I don't know what has happened to her, but I always felt it was such a shame because she was so amazing and had such good ideas. Um, but then she, you know, she let that go in, in favor of another goal. So you must so have been even at culturally dependent <laughs> you even at that age you must have been really reflective in terms of observing that in other children I guess I have been yes um, I always look at the bigger picture and what could be possibly going on and did you always know you wanted to teach I wanted to teach when I was little and then I um, went to to two different colleges and I went to a crazy college in Florida with no grades on the beach um, and it was pass or fail so everybody's like whoa new grades that would be amazing but actually it's 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 much more challenging than having grades because if you get an evaluation that says you know Charlene put minimal effort in and was just passing through and doesn't understand the fundamental concepts of biology that's 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 pretty damaging and, and if you just got a C and or a three and they just said, okay, you know, average, whatever, you know? Yeah. So um, I think uh, that has definitely shaped my, shaped my worldview, shaped my learning, made me independent. And it's what I try to give my kids uh, um, in fourth and fifth and sixth grade too, you know, or second grade, whatever grade they're in. I think it's so important not to wait until you get to college to, <laughs> to experience, um, ownership of your own learning, you know? So uh, at this college, it's called New College in Sarasota, Florida. You could pick whatever you wanted to learn. You, you picked your classes. Um, they had little mini classes, so you would go and see what the class was actually going to be about, see what the requirements are, because you have to balance that out. You can't be writing three papers that are all due on the same day. Um, and then you, and you know, I would, I would have in my head, oh, this is what I think I'm going to take. And then by the time I was done with the mini class, it <laughs> completely changed. It sounds amazing. <laughs> uh, because it, it was incredible. It was, I just feel so privileged to have sat 
in that place. You know, I felt that I was not as smart as everybody else was there, but man, was I happy to be there. <laughs> and that, and that, that love of learning, that's, that's exactly what you just described is what we all aim to pass on to children, isn't it? And, and for ourselves, Bryony, I'm just so excited that you are doing this project because it's your own self-development and your own curiosity that's driving this. Yeah, thank you. Know? you. And how many times do you talk to adults and, and they you say, oh, how's it going? What are you doing? And you talk about your job and you don't talk, or you talk about your kids, but you don't talk about what you yourself are passionate and interested about right at this moment, what you're doing, you know? Yeah. And it's like so amazing to me. And, and I don't want to only pass that on to kids. I think adults, even if you're a parent and you're overwhelmed and you have no time, should still pursue something that you're interested in because your kids will respect you more and you will have a better, more fulfilled life if you have something outside of them. Even though I know, you know, I'm not a parent myself, but I can see how overwhelming the responsibility is and the time commitment is and, and, and the physical and emotional giving of being a parent. But I also think you, you still need somewhere a small amount of time to, to nurture the self, you know. Absolutely. I mean, for example, Chris and I are listening now to um, lectures um, from a guy in Canada about psychology, and we're, we, we're not doing any of the readings, but, you know, we're old enough to have enough experience and to have read enough of the stuff to really, really get a lot out of these lectures. And it's amazing to listen to a lecture online and then stop the lecture every 10 minutes and say, yes, but this and that, and have these amazing discussions. And it's really exciting, you know. Um, and there, you, and there again, you have, you've got someone, do, someone to bounce those ideas off. That, I think that's so important. Yes. But, uh, it's so important, yeah. I think that's such a lovely point to probably end it on because we're – Otherwise, it'll. I could go on forever. <laughs> but thank you so, thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you for having me, Bryony. I really hope this long distance works. Yeah. Well, well, I I will find out soon when I try and put it all together. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Charlene. Okay. Thank you, Bryony. All right. I'm gonna cut the the audio off there, but just as I. Thank you so much. Oh, I've learned so much already. That's like half an hour while Ben's sleeping. The show notes for today will be on our website, talklearning.net, where you can also nominate somebody for a future episode. Thanks for listening.